Well, good morning. Good morning, everybody. I'm preaching the sermon today. <laughs> Let me, uh, i got to set up my little countdown timer, make sure I don't go over, which I don't think I will, but... Um, I'll just tackle you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Going too long. Um, well, it's a privilege to be able to to preach a sermon this morning. Um, and uh, yeah, I took the class earlier in the year that Dean and Mike taught, um, and uh, this is the sermon I prepared as part of that. Um, and uh, so I think most, most of you all know me. If not, I'm Nate. So let me pray before I start. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for all the saints gathered here. Um, pray for this time. Pray you would speak through me, Lord. Speak your word. Um, pray uh, everyone here would be able to but have ears to receive it. And uh, pray um, uh, less of me and more of you, uh, Father God. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Joel already read the passage, um, the passage I'm preaching on is Romans 8, 1 through 11. Um, so I don't need to read it again. Um, now, so I have a question for everybody. How many of us here regularly carry around burdens? Burdens of guilt? Burdens of shame? Burdens of regret? Maybe you had an argument with your wife or husband the other day, uh, and you're feeling regret for the way you, you acted. Or maybe you disciplined your kids, your kids in anger and are feeling regret, uh, regretting the actions towards them. Or perhaps there's something dark from your past um, that you still feel guilt or shame about. And, and really, how many of us you know, who work um, sometimes feel condemnation or judgment from our boss or our coworkers because we feel like we're not living up to their expectations? Or we feel like we're not living up to the high bar placed on us by our parents or spouse? or other family members. Or you just maybe don't feel like you're living up to societal societal expectations or the latest cultural trends, like success looks like this, or the cool people dress like this. I mean, have you ever just had a day where you, don't, where you feel like you just can't make anyone happy? <laughs> um, admittedly, some of the expectations that are placed on us are unreasonable. But the ultimate expectations placed on us come from God. His requirements are truly worthy. They're written down in his law, and he demands perfect obedience to them. But who here can say we've perfectly lived up to God's law? How many of us would pass that test? So our passage today in Romans 8, Romans 8, 1, starts out with a statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul's making a concluding argument here based on previous things he said. He uses the word therefore, so we should go and find out what it is therefore. What are the amazing things that he said? What are the things that he said that met, led up to this amazing statement? Let me give, I'll give a very brief summary of, uh, of the book of Romans up to this point. Very brief. According to biblical scholars, Romans 1, 16 to 17, if you want to turn there, it's Romans 1, 16 to 17. It's the passage that presents Paul's central argument for the entire book of Romans. And I'll read it. That's Romans 1, 16 to 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Basically, Paul's thesis is that righteousness or a right standing with God is given by God through faith in the gospel. And the rest of uh, the book of Romans is Paul's defense of that argument. Now, a bit further into Romans, he says that righteousness is not earned by obeying the law, but given to, to us by God when we believe in and trust in the work of Jesus on the cross. Romans three twenty-one to 22, this is from the New Living Translation. I'll just read it. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Then in Romans 5, he says that since we have been made right with God, we have peace with him. Romans 6 states we have died to sin, and Romans 7 says we have been released from the law. So in summary... By placing our faith in Jesus and what he did for us, we have been made right with God, we have peace with God, we have died to sin, and we have been released from the law. But right before our passage, in Romans 8, Paul brings up a problem. This is Romans 7, 21 to 24, just right, right before our passage today. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We can see that Paul is frustrated with his sin and that when he wants to do right, he often finds something else within him fighting against that. Apparently his sin has not completely died because he still sees it warring within him. Can you relate? Now, if someone has declared war against you, then you are at war. You don't really have a choice. You must defend yourself because you are under attack. So Paul wants to do right, but he is under attack by his sin, and he concludes that he's a wretched and miserable man because of it. But then when he asks, who will deliver me from this body of death? His answer in verse 25 He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He remembers that Jesus will save him from his wretched and miserable state. Now, after all of this, he ends the chapter. uh, He ends this, this train of thought with something that I've often found kind of odd, and it's not quite what I would have expected. So it's in the second half of verse 25. This is chapter 7, verse 25. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. I mean, it seems kind of like an odd statement if he's, if he's saying, if he's concluding his, his, his thought here of, hooray, everything's okay because I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. How, if your person is saved by Jesus, how do they still serve the law of sin? How could that be kind of a concluding statement that makes everything okay? Well, actually, they don't. If you read carefully, he says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
So he's saying that he, has, that he himself serves God. And this is now his true identity. This is now who he is. But his flesh still serves sin. His true identity in Christ has been separated from his sin nature, his sinful flesh. And this is supported by Romans 7, 16 to 17. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And he basically says the same thing in verse 20, chapter 7, verse 20. Now, as an observation, whenever there's a war, there's always at least two sides. Even in civil wars, when one country is at war with itself, there are still two sides. For example, in the American Civil War, there was North and the South. And often in wars, there are allies. And you don't typically fight with your allies, or else they wouldn't really be your allies. So the fact that Paul is under attack by his sin shows that he is no longer allied with it. He has joined God's side, and his sin hates that, and therefore it attacks. So what I think Paul is trying to do here is to carefully trace out the reality of, of the Christian identity in this current age, in this current world, and explain the nature of who a Christian person truly is. We have not yet been made perfectly sinless, but we are no longer identified with our sin, and that's key. We were previously 100% rebellious in mind, soul, and body. But now, though we still live in our sinful flesh, we have a new identity that has been redeemed from sin. Uh, Martin Luther, who's considered by many as the father of the Protestant Reformation, he describes it like this. He describes it with the Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, which means that Christians are simultaneously justified, in other words, considered righteous, and at the same time, sinners. However, the fact that we are not yet sinless does not mean we just have, we have permission to go sin whenever, however we want. This is not license. Remember that Paul said this is not who you are anymore. This is not your identity. Get a quick drink of water here. Jesus came to free you from your life of sin. In Romans 6, 1 to 2, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Jesus died on the cross to save you from your old slave master called sin not so that you would go willingly back to serve it. Eradication and elimination of sin is God's goal for us. This is what he came to do, is what he came in to, to die for. So we see that the Christian life is not defined as a life that has just avoided condemnation by, or avoided condemnation by just avoiding sin. Rather, we are no longer condemned because we have identified with Jesus and his death on the cross. And we no longer we no longer identify with our sin. So you can quit beating yourself up because you are not perfect. You and I may still struggle with sin at times, but know that this is because it has declared war against you. If you are, if you have given yourself to to Christ, and if you are in Christ Jesus, sin is no longer your identity. It's not who you are anymore. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you can take heart because He has defeated your sin. Though we were once prisoners of war to our sin, he has won the war and set us free from its claim over us. 
And one day he will completely remove any trace of it from us. So if the Christian life is a life no longer identified with sin, it is therefore a life no longer lived under condemnation. So back to Romans 8.1, our main passage here today. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I mean, first of all, what, what a great verse, right? It's such liber- so liberating, so freeing. Um, and it's, it's possibly the climax of the book, book of Romans. Um, I think you can make an argument for that. And for me, it's a passage that's brought me great comfort um, over the years as I, you know, thought about it and meditated on it. Um, just the thought of um, no more condemnation, like there's none left. <laughs> and I imagine it's uh, been a great comfort to Christians around the world and through the ages. Um, and, you know, remember my intro when I talked about how many of us regularly carry around burdens of guilt or shame. Well, in Christ Jesus, there is no longer any condemnation. But what is condemnation? I mean, what does that actually mean? What does that word mean? It's a, a damnatory sentence or an adverse sentence against you. It means you have been judged and sentenced for punishment, like a convict on death row, who committed a heinous crime and has been condemned to death. Now, someone who has been condemned has not received the punishment yet, but they will. And it usually means there is little hope for them. Now, in God's word, in Deuteronomy 27, 26, it says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm, who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. So those who don't completely carry out the words of God's law will be cursed, which is a punishment for not confirming the words of the law by doing them. In other words, condemnation. And have any of us here, as I've asked before, have we always obeyed and carried out the requirements of the biblical law? Paul says in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. No, we have all committed treason against God's will, and therefore we deserve the curse or the condemnation that comes with it. But wait! Paul said in Romans 8, 1, that those who are in Christ Jesus are free from that sentence. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how is this possible, though? If we have failed to confirm the words of this law by doing them, how is it that we have escaped the curse or the condemnation? Well, verses 2 through 4 in our passage today. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the, in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, first of all, in verse 2, when he says, the law of the spirit of life, and the law of sin and death. What does that mean? A way to think about it is power or authority. So, said another way, the power or authority of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the power or authority of sin and death. So was the spirit of life, his power and authority, who set us free from the power of sin that had condemned us. 
Now, in verse 3, when he says that the law was weakened by the flesh, what does that mean? Look back at Romans 7, 9 through 11, just back in the previous chapter. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So the coming of the law made sin come alive within our flesh, within our human persons. Then in verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And here's the important part. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law of God is in itself good. But sin, being the evil thing it is, took the opportunity that the law provided through the weakness of our flesh to deceive us and kill us. This is how the law was weakened by our flesh. But the good news is that God has done what the law could not do. Even though we deserve condemnation because of our rebellion against God's holy law, we don't receive that condemnation because Jesus received the condemnation for us. But how is that? In verse 3, it says that he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. In other words, he was sent as a sin offering. When it says for sin, he was sent as a sin offering. He was offered up on the cross for our sin in our place. He was condemned for our sin. And when he was condemned, our sin was condemned with him. Now, you remember um, the Sherlock Holmes movie, the second movie from a few years ago? Um, not the TV series, but the uh, the second, the first and second movie with Robert Downey Jr., um, if you if you haven't seen it, well, don't feel too bad about spoiling the end because it's been out for a few years. Um, but there's a part that's right at the end. Um, Sherlock is uh, facing the evil genius Moriarty, um, and they're they're in this castle in Switzerland or somewhere, um, and it's built on the side of a mountain. Um, and Moriarty's he's trying to uh, basically start this war throughout all of Europe, and so that he can profit off the the sale of arms. And, uh, but millions of people are going to die as part of it, and Sherlock's trying to stop them. So, um, so they find themselves alone on, um, on this open balcony, which drops off the side of the mountain, uh, down the, down these sheer cliffs into, uh, icy river below. And, um, they're just out there, uh, by themselves, and they're, they're basically engaged in this battle of wits. Um, if you've seen it, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, in the, in both movies, uh, Sherlock has this, um, when he, whenever he fights a bad guy, he has this, um, he like works out in his head beforehand. Um, he, he, uh, he says, okay, I'm going to hit this guy like this and he's going to block and then I'll hit him again and, and I'll block his, you know, and boom, boom, I'll, I'll knock him out. And then he actually does it real fast and it, exactly as he thought it out. But with, uh, Moriarty, he's met his match because Moriarty can basically do this too. So they, they get to this place where they're kind of like fighting out the fight in their minds before it actually happens. And uh, they both know what's going to happen. Uh, Moriarty knows he's going to win. Sherlock kind of realizes he's probably going to lose and die. So um, so in, the, in this, there's this kind of quiet moment before the fight actually goes down when Sherlock grabs, grabs his pipe and, you know, and fills it. And uh, Moriarty being kind of a gentleman and giving him his, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm about to kill you, so I'll let you have your last smoke, offers to light his pipe for him. Um, and they're, they're up against the, the edge of the balcony here. And, uh, and just as, uh, Moriarty lights Sherlock's pipe, 
uh, Sherlock gets this, gets this idea. And what he does is all of a sudden he blows the hot ash in Moriarty's face, which takes him off guard. He wasn't expecting this. And then Sherlock, what he does, he's got to stop this guy at any cost, right? So what he does is he grabs him in this opportune moment he has. And just as uh, Sherlock's friend, Dr. Watson, comes through the door, he Sherlock takes Moriarty and both of them, he, he pulls both of them over the side of the cliff, over the side of the balcony, down the, the side of the mountain into the icy river below. This is basically what Jesus did with our sin. He grabbed a hold of it and took both him and it down into the grave to die. And if he hadn't, we would go down into the grave with our, our own sin and be condemned with it forever. So in these, in these verses, verses 2 through 4, Paul is explaining how it is that we are free from condemnation. We have been freed from it because our sin has already been condemned. It was placed on Jesus and condemned to death along with his condemnation. So the Christian life is lived free from condemnation because the condemnation we deserved was already carried out on Jesus through his death on the cross. Now, if the Christian life is a life lived free from condemnation, it is also a life lived in the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, this last point is going to cover numerous verses, basically the second half of verse 4 through 11, because it's essentially one continuous idea. So I'll read it first, starting back in verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, as we just saw, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So we can see in these verses that Paul is laying out two different ways to live. He is contrasting a life lived in the flesh versus a life lived in the spirit. And now here he is calling us to do something. He is calling us to set our minds no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. He is calling us to no longer walk in the flesh, but walk in the spirit. And we have already seen that a life lived in the flesh that is, a life identified with sin, deserves condemnation and death. But we have been freed from that in Christ Jesus to a new life. We have been freed from a life of, of sin and condemnation to a life in the Spirit. Now, of course, we can see that, that being saved from condemnation and death is obviously a good thing. No one would, would probably argue that. But what's the big deal about seeing being saved to a life in the Spirit? 
I would argue that this is probably the big deal. This is what God's entire plan of salvation is all about. It's to reconcile us back to himself. If he dwells within us, this means mission accomplished. Sin has been cleared away, condemnation has been cleared away, and death has been cleared away because Jesus paid for it. Therefore, we can now have the very spirit of God live in us and we in him. So the Christian life is not just a life lived free from condemnation, and then you can go about the rest of your life and go about your business. It is also a life lived in the Spirit. In fact, it is a life lived free from condemnation because it is a life lived in the Spirit. So remember, it is the Spirit who has set you free from the law of sin and death. His power, His authority, has overridden the power and authority of sin and death to free you from the grasp of sin and death through the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Look at verse 6. It says, To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Life and peace. Isn't that what Jesus came for? In John 10.10, he says, I came that that they may have life and have it abundantly. But notice, this is only for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gift of being free from condemnation and the gift of life in the Spirit is only given to those who are in Christ Jesus. But what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Look down at verse 9. You, however, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. I'll, I'll say it again, leaving out a few words to enhance clarity. You, however, are in the Spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Did you see that? You are in the Spirit if the Spirit is in you. And the next sentence says basically the same thing in 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 negative. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you don't have him, then he doesn't have you, in other words. Now, notice what he does in verses 9 through 11. He uses the following phrases in progression. The Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ and Christ. He's, he's talking about the same thing, right? The Spirit is Christ, and Christ is the Spirit. And we know that they are both part of the Trinity, and therefore also one with the Father. So taking both these things together, you are in the Spirit, if the Spirit is in you, and the Spirit and Christ are one. Therefore we can say that you are in Christ Jesus, if Christ Jesus is in you. This is what we have been saved to, we have been saved to, from something, sin and death, and saved to a restored relationship with our Creator and with Jesus, His Son, and our Savior, and with the very Spirit of God. This, is, this all happened through the Holy Spirit, and we now live in Him, and He lives in us. Of course, we don't yet see God face to face. This is still to come. But this doesn't take away from the fact that the Spirit now dwells within us. In Ephesians 1, 13-14, Paul says that the Holy Spirit was given to us as a down payment of our inheritance, which is to come. I'll just read it. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, or down payment, of our inheritance, until we acquired the possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit is given as a guarantee, or down payment. Um, Tim Keller, in one of his sermons, once described what it was like to have the Holy Spirit. Um, in, in the Lord of the Rings series, I think it's both the movie and the book, 
um, the main character Frodo is he's uh, he's given this chainmail vest made of this uh, material called mithril as a it's a gift from his uncle. In the world that Tolkien has created, um, mithril is a substance that is more valuable than gold and stronger yet lighter than steel. Now, Frodo's wearing it under his clothes, but he doesn't really understand just how valuable it is, and his friends don't know he has it either. They don't find out about it until after it saves his life during an attack. And then when they see what he has, they are utterly amazed. To have a small bit of mithril would have been amazing enough. But to have a whole coat made of from it, Gandalf said it was greater than the value of the whole Shire and everything in it. That'd be like saying, I have a t-shirt that's greater than the value of the city of Linwood and everything in it. <laughs> this is kind of like, this is kind of like what it's like to have the Holy Spirit. We have a hard time understanding the sheer amazing value and power of who it is that dwells within us. It's God himself. And because he dwells within us and we with him, we are now family. We belong to each other and we are intimately connected with God himself. So let us not, so let us not live anymore to ourselves or live anymore by our own efforts. Why would we? I confess that much of my life has been defined by my own self-reliance. I don't often ask for help. I too often have tried to accomplish things on my own. Kind of a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of, kind of guy. But we need, we need to stop relying on ourselves. I need to stop relying on myself and place our trust in the spirit who dwells within us to rely on his power and quit looking to our own flesh to save us. Remember that our own, that our flesh serves the law of sin. Why would you lean on it, on it anymore? So the passage we looked at today showed us several important truths about the Christian life. One is a life no longer identified with sin. In Christ Jesus, sin is not who you are anymore. It is not your identity. When you become an ally of Jesus, you automatically become an enemy to your sin. And your sin goes on the attack, which is a sign that it is not the true you anymore. Two, because you are no longer identified with sin anymore, you are, you are no longer con- condemned with your sin. This is because Jesus grabbed a hold of it. He identified with your sin, even though he himself was perfect. And your sin was condemned to death when he was condemned, when he was crucified. And three, the Christian life is a life lived in the spirit, no longer lived in the flesh. We belong to him and he belongs to us. We are now the f- part of the family of God. And though we are not there yet, there is a time coming when God will finally and completely remove all trace of our sin. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for, for this time. Thank you for this morning. Um, thank you for your word. Um, thank you that um, we have been, for those of us in Christ Jesus, we have been uh, freed from condemnation. Um, because of your death on the cross and because you you were condemned instead of us. Pray um pray we'd always be thankful of that. Um help us, Lord, to to walk therefore a life, to walk and set our minds uh on the Spirit and live to your glory. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>